Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 230. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm looking at one movie from the 50s and one from the 70s. The movie from the 50s is The Sun Also Rises, an adaptation of an Ernest Hemingway novel starring Tyrone Power and Ava Gardner. Then we go to the 1970s for one of the kind of atypical war movies that came out during that era and it's going to be Kelly's Heroes starring Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas, Don Rickles and a host of others. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and I'll get the show started in just a moment. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around, unless you have incredibly hip children. Hey, everyone. Uh, Looks like autumn has reared its ugly head again. It's getting a little bit cooler. The days are getting a little bit shorter, which is a horrible thing. And were it summer all year long, I'd be a very happy little camper. What I probably need to do is have this house on wheels so that I can migrate it north in the winter and south in the summer. That would probably be the ideal situation, but it's not really likely to happen. I hope you're all doing okay. Uh, I've had some interesting things happen here. Happy Mardi Gras, everybody. It is the weekend of the Sydney and Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras, which is kind of cool. 30 years ago, I was a crowd marshal at the Mardi Gras and had a great time with that, and I got very nostalgic about it because it's now the 40th anniversary of the Mardi Gras. And um, all strength to my LGBTQI friends, and I hope that uh, you're all doing well. And if you are at or have been at the Mardi Gras, I hope you had a great time there as well, celebrating who you are and doing so without any harassment. So I've done a few things. Uh, Sally and I became members of the uh, zoo, which is kind of interesting. Uh, that you pay out your money and you get to go to the zoo as often as you like throughout the year. In fact, you get to go to three zoos. You get to go to Werribee Open Plain Zoo, which is the one nearest to us. You get to go to the Melbourne Zoo and you get to go to Hillsville Sanctuary where all the native animals are. So we're looking forward to using that a bit. Uh, the Werribee Zoo is really local to us, like you know, eight minutes drive away. And so we're going to go to that more often. Uh, we went with some friends. And took the zoo tour around in some big trucks that they have for you to drive around. We saw a lot of elands. We saw some giraffes. Got very close to four rhinos, which is kind of cool. And a whole bunch of other uh, animals, uh, including hippopotami. So there were a couple of hippopotami there. And we didn't do the walking tour where you get to go and see the other cool animals like the gorillas and and the lions and a bunch of other ones. So we're going to do that next time. But we had a great time, and uh, I'm going to use that as a bit of a kind of chilling out place for me. If you go during the weekdays, it's not particularly busy. Weekends and public holidays, it goes crazy busy. But we can pop down there very easily. It's easily as we go to a cafe locally. And uh, just kind of hang out with some very nice animals, including some very friendly and charismatic meerkats. So we did that. And then after that, the day after that, 
I went and saw Blank Panther for the second time, which is pretty cool. I did it because I also talked about it on the radio with Michaela Simpson off ABC Radio NT, and I wanted to see it again. I had a free ticket someone had given me as a present. So Sal and I, so I went to see that. Sal went to see Coco. And then while I'm watching the last 25 minutes of Black Panther, she snuck into the cinema and watched the rest of that with me, which was kind of surprising, but a little bit cool. So, yeah, I was still impressed with it. I love the ensemble. I like the way that it creates another world. The world building is fantastic in it. Yes, it's got the three-act structure of a normal Marvel movie, or in fact, a lot of action films. But within that kind of constraint, it still does a fantastic job, as I said when I talked about it last time around with Lucas Garrett. But I rewatched that again. So I rewatched Black Panther within 24 hours of hanging out in real life with Rhinoceri. So that was kind of cool and gave me a real um, kind of friss on. It was a very kind of Wakanda couple of days there. And that was um, a lot of fun to enjoy. So we did that. I found an obsession on Netflix as well, which has really grabbed me. It's a Spanish science fiction TV series called El Ministerio del Tiempo, the Ministry of Time, which is kind of cool. It's a government ministry in Spain, which has existed for about 400 years and contains a kind of well with a whole bunch of doors in it, which travel to different areas of time. And the ministry's job is to protect the timeline. So... I started watching that, and I'm two and a half seasons into the three seasons of it, with subtitles, of course. And I'm really enjoying it. I like the ensemble cast. I like the empowerment of women that it shows. I like the fact that it shows Spanish history, because all the doors to time are within Spain or Spanish territories for some reason. They're really honest about the faults and the problems of the, the history of Spain and, you know, the Franco regime, the Inquisition, the heavy emphasis on Catholicism. They really address that and look at it, including gender roles. One of the main protagonists is a woman they recruited in 1960 who was about to commit suicide because she was a lesbian and couldn't live anymore and was being gaslighted by her family and husband. So she's a, And she's a really strong character in uh, Arena. Uh, they've also got a guy from 15th century Spain who's a soldier. They've got a paramedic at, in the first couple of seasons, at least. They've got a paramedic guy from the 21st century and a woman who was the first uni- female university student in Spain from the late uh, 19th century. So they've got a nice range of people there with a range of views. They get another character from the 1980s who's a cop from the 1980s who comes in, and because he looks like Al Pacino in Serpico, everyone calls him Pacino. You've got some really good actors as the um, bureaucrats of the ministry, uh, really terrific ensemble cast and some surprises there there's some twists and turns and they address pretty much every issue you'd expect them to address as far as the paradoxes and ethical dilemmas of time travel are concerned the series has been sold um the concept's been sold they've done a version in portugal as well and they've sold it to various companies around the world including one in the u.s which is probably going to fuck it up but um, El Ministerio del Tiempo is really great fun. Uh, it's on Netflix at the moment here in Australia. And I've really enjoyed it. It's one of the better time travel series I've seen in a long time. Plus, I'm learning a lot about Spanish history, which is kind of cool. And any movies or any TV series, or not movie series, but TV series, that has uh, Luis Buñuel and Alfred Hitchcock as characters that are met 
by the team when they time travel is pretty much where I'm going to go. It's really part of my realm, and uh, I enjoy it for that reason. I'm kind of dreading the fact that I've only got a few episodes left in the three seasons they've done thus far. I don't know whether it's been um, continued for a fourth, but because they sold it to Netflix, they may well have the wherewithal to make a fourth season. And I really hope they do because it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's drama, there's comedy, there's all sorts of ranges of human interactions. There are paradoxes, there are problems that are raised and addressed as much as you can. And there are also kind of philosophical ruminations on the nature of time travel and the nature of history. There's a whole bunch of pop cultural references that get thrown through it as well, including stuff about the Eurovision Song Contest. And yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's probably my big discovery this year as far as television series are concerned. And I'm going to very, feel very sad when I finish watching it. Uh, what else have I seen? Good horror movie from a couple of years ago called Don't Breathe, which is really cool. It's about three young people in Detroit who... Uh, raid the house of an old blind man because they've heard he got a big payout from um, because of an accident his daughter had and his daughter was killed in the accident. So they kind of go into his house at night time. It's in one of those areas of Detroit where there are hardly any other people living there and things don't turn out the way they expect them to. Kill surprise, it's a horror movie. Really nicely done, beautiful use of suspense rather than jump cuts. Sorry, jump shocks and all those other bits and things. It's not as gory as it might have been otherwise, and but there's some really original horror in there, which amazes me. Um, Sal and I watched it and we were both really impressed with it. One of the other things I watched was, having spoken about the Mardi Gras issue, there was an ABC television movie called Riot, which was the history of the very first uh, Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras in 1978 and the arrests that were made by the coppers because they were it was still illegal at that stage to be homosexual male in Australia they had that Victorian law where Queen Victoria didn't believe lesbians existed so lesbians got a free pass though there were problems with uh, lesbian Australians as well who couldn't get custody rights to their own children when there was a divorce or a marriage breakup they really kind of hit a whole bunch of different um, problems of the time and the corruption of the uh, police. There's another surprise, corrupt police, which continues to this day in other ways. Um, Damon Herriman plays the protagonist in there, play, based on a real guy who was one of the triggers for the Mardi Gras. They look at the social situation as it was in Sydney, how the uh, gay liberation movement as it was then got the unions on board and ended up um, protecting the rights of gay students who were banned from residential colleges because they were gay. Uh, there was a whole bunch of really good content in there. It was a bit uh, restricted by the budget. It's actually at the moment on ABC iView. I, I think it's geo-blocked for other places. But I hope it's one of those um, movies that gets a go on Netflix or somewhere like that and they sell the rights to it some, in other countries because there's a universality to some of the themes there. And like um, El Ministerio del Tempo, it doesn't whitewash anything. It makes the bad look bad and it's honest about police corruption. It's honest about all the other social issues that were a part of living in Australia as a gay person at that time. And uh, I was kind of thinking through that, and it made me reflective too. At the time of the first Mardi Gras, I was as homophobic as anybody I know. Uh, I was raised in a homophobic environment. That was just part of the culture. 
And from 1979 till 1988, when I crowd marshaled, I went through a, a crazy change in my viewpoint. I met gay people. I liked them. They helped me with things. They were kind and generous and the kind of people I knew I was running toward rather than away from socially. When I left the Western suburbs of Sydney, I was running away from the brutality of that environment and the anti-intellectualism and the, all the things that I didn't like about it. And some of the people who welcomed me most when I moved and when I joined the science fiction community were gay people. So most of whom now, oddly enough, are Facebook friends, which is really kind of cool. But um, yeah, it did make me reflective about my own journey on that. And I kind of liked that. Um, I like the fact that I've come so far. I'm not perfect by any means, but I think if you're not becoming a better person as you get older, what's the fucking point? Anyway, uh, that's pretty much all I've been watching, so I'm going to take a break now, and I'm going to do these in reverse order because I like one of these two movies more than I like the other. And I'm going to do Kelly's Heroes first from 1970, uh, starring Clint Eastwood and a big ensemble cast, some tanks, and uh, it's a kind of black comedy set in World War II about a bunch of soldiers who find out about and decide to steal a fortune in gold from a bank in German-occupied territory in France. Them, we don't get the gold. What gold? Proposition. Thought you might be interested in helping me out. Oh. I want you to set up a barrage for me. Yeah. If you whisper one word about the gold to these guys, I'm gonna have you bounce from this outfit so fast your feet won't even touch the ground. Okay, Kelly. What is it? I want the intelligence reports of this whole sector, and I need them in the next two hours. That's nice. What's in it for me? It's behind enemy lines. I got three Shermans outside. His name's Oddball. A Sherman can give you a very nice edge. These are my boys. It's still up. <laughs> Look, baby, I'm kind of hung up. I need about 60 feet of bridge. Listen, kid, they haven't got your back in an upward again, have they? I don't need you. 60 feet of bridge I can pick up almost anywhere. Schmuck. All right, all right. I need at least 100 guys. Where do I find 100 men just like that? Loudball better show up, Kelly. Come on, let's move it up. But my hair is still in curls. Oh, shut up, get out. Oh, get with this thing. Hey, nobody said anything about flapping his 30 caliber machine gun all over the country. I'll make it $50 if you carry the machine gun, huh? Fire! Fire! I thought you said three Shermans. Those nuts have brought half the army with them. What is this? Oh, what is this, a ball game? Who are these guys? My friends, okay? And who's that bunch of refugees over there? The band. The band? What do we need a band for? You 
see, we're just a private enterprise operation. Those freaks! That ain't an army, it's a circus! It could be the perfect crime. Okay, so Kelly's Heroes is a 1970 war comedy directed by Brian G. Hutton, a guy who didn't have too many other um, credits to his name as a director. Uh, he directed When Eagles Dare, which was another Clint Eastwood movie in 1968. Uh, also Soul Madrid, which is a really bad David McCullum kind of action film. And then he did a couple of films, Z and Co. and Nightwatch, starring Elizabeth Taylor, which is never a good thing in the 1970s. And he also directed High Road to China in 1983 with Thomas Selleck in it. Again, not particularly a great film. The plot's fairly simple. I'll do the plot first and then I'll do the stars of the movie. Uh, the plot's fairly simple. In 1944, uh, the 35th Infantry Division is crossing France and, and trying to kind of defeat the Germans. They... A bunch of soldiers, including a private called Kelly, who was a former lieutenant, scapegoated for a failed infantry assault, finds a Wehrmacht colonel, and the colonel has a couple, a few lead bars on him, which appear to be lead at least, but they're gold bars. And so Kelly gets him drunk, and he tells him that there's $16 million in gold bars in a bank 30 miles behind enemy lines in a town called Clermont. So Kelly decides to go after the gold, as you do, and gets together a whole bunch of um, motley <laughs> crew to achieve that. Um, and in doing so, they also managed to move forward the Allied front during the war. So as far as cast is concerned, you've got Clint Eastwood as Private Kelly, Telly Savalas playing uh, the Master Sergeant Big Joe, Don Rickles as a Staff Sergeant called Crap Game, Carol O'Connor's playing the Major General in this one, playing it very broadly and slightly comically. Uh, Donald Sutherland plays a tank commander who's got a few tanks called Oddball, and he has kind of a hippie commune, anachronistically going on uh, behind Allied lines, and he has a few tanks which Kelly needs to get the gig done. You've also got Gavin McLeod playing one of Oddball's offsiders, Moriarty, Stuart Margolin turns up as a private little Joe, Jeff Morris playing a guy called Cowboy, Perry Lopez who was in Chinatown uh, playing a guy called Pachuco, and we even get Harry Dean Stanton showing up as uh, a private in the Motley crew. There's a whole bunch of different character actors just turn up and you go, okay, yeah, I know that guy. So the movie was actually made in Aust in uh, Yugoslavia, sorry, not Austria, Yugoslavia, because for a couple of reasons. One of which is the Yugoslav army had a whole bunch of World War II tanks they were still using, which came in very handy for the production of the film, which had about a $4 million budget. But also there was a whole bunch of MGM's money trapped in Yugoslavia because they wouldn't let them export it back to America. So they did what they often did in Europe during the 1950s, 60s and 70s and used the money to um, make a film. And in this case, they used some of it towards Killy's Heroes. 
Clint Eastwood came on board to, for the movie because at the time they had his mate Don Siegel engaged to be the director of the film. But there was a scheduling problem and Don Siegel couldn't direct it, so they got the other guy to do it and um, Eastwood stayed on. The other thing that the movie had going for it, uh, as far as credibility with MGM was concerned, was the script, which was a guy by a guy called Troy Kennedy Martin, an English guy. Now, the reason Troy Kennedy Martin was such a big name at the time in 1970 was he'd also scripted a movie a year before, which made crazy money at the box office, a little film you might know called The Italian Job. So here they go. They've got a World War II caper film by the guy who wrote The Italian Job. At first, they've got Don Siegel to direct it, which didn't turn out to be the case. They've got Donald Sutherland, who was just hitting his peak because MASH was coming out in the same year, and that had good buzz on it as well. You've got Eastwood, who was reliable. You've got Telly Savalas, who was reliable. Uh, Don Rickles, people knew from television. Donald Sutherland again. And a whole bunch of other people. You've got lots of explosions. You've got that also that sweet spot in history where the kind of people going to see these movies were very often World War II veterans. It was um, 30 years after the war started for the Americans. So you've got all these 40- and 50-year-old guys who were in the war going to see war films, which they enjoyed seeing. None of them believed any of the films were at all realistic, but there was a time in history going from, say, mid-1950s to early-mid-1970s when there was definitely a um, war veteran audience, and people who lived with the war didn't even go to the war as well, which were kind of nostalgic for that. In the same way, we're starting to get some nostalgia for 1980s stuff in cinema now. That's as far away as World War II was from the making of Kelly Hero- Kelly's Heroes. So you've got all of that stuff coming together there. You've also got the anti-authoritarianism of the movie as well to take into consideration because we're only three years away from the summer three years after the summer of love in this one so it's a war movie that even if you were anti-war you could go and see with a clear conscience because the um, people in authority were wankers there was a whole bunch of crazy guys getting together to steal money from an entrenched power which was never a bad thing so there's a wide anti-authoritarian streak through this movie and that being a comedy of course there was that streak of um the authorities being idiots and of course as this was after the breaking of the production code people could get away with crimes and not be punished by the fact that you couldn't make a movie where a criminal didn't get punished or a thief didn't get punished so everything was open there they could really run with it they had a bunch of box office guys in there who could really sell a picture even though the movie only made about 1.2 million above its budget it still did quite well and it's done pretty well since then in um, rentals and and sell through dvds blu-rays vhs and all those kinds of things so it's done fairly well so what do i think of the film um i'm kind of a bit underwhelmed by it i think that i liked other movies with an ensemble cast of misfits a lot better things like uh, the dirty dozen which this movie came out a couple of years after and was probably quite aware of there are a lot of movies that copied the format of the dirty dozen there was the devil's brigade with william holden and cliff robertson there are a bunch of other ones too much lesser films but this one came right on the end of it <clears throat> and you can always tell when a cycle of films is 
kind of dying off because they start to do comedies making fun of the format. That's probably not happening with superhero movies, even though Deadpool does take the piss out of superhero movies. It's definitely in-house kind of taking the piss. But that cycle of action films with a scruffy, um, eccentric bunch of guys getting together to do something, even though it's a, a great format, really, this is probably at the tail end of that. And Kelly's Heroes really... You know, for me, it doesn't kind of work. I think it's a little bit by the numbers, and it's a bit of a sausage fest. It's always nice to have a few women in there for this kind of film. In fact, there was going to be a female character in the film, played by Ingrid Pitt, and she was almost at the airport when they called her up and said, no, don't bother coming because we've cut your character out of the film. So they've got that there, and it doesn't play as well. I mean, a little bit of attractive female acting, in the film and even a kick-ass i mean if this was made these days there'd be at least one or two kick-ass action star women in it because women did kick-ass during world war ii the more we find out about the history of world war ii the tough women who were all a part of that people like nancy wake for instance and all the russian female snipers who were deadly accurate and and, um, all the other women that were in the french resistance and in yugoslavia as the partisans all of those kind of people the women really were written out of history but there's still time to put them back in and there's been a lot of research done on how women contributed frontline to the war effort in world war ii and these movies kind of ignore that. And that's a bit of a shame because I really like stories like that where the truth of things, which is a lot more complex than we assumed it was, we assumed it was mostly a sausage fest in World War Two, And it most definitely wasn't. In fact, when Sal and I went to Paris, we noticed that one of the streets was named after one of the female resistance fighters during the war. And this wasn't kind of a street out in the burbs or anything like that. It was right in the centre of Paris, within a, a kilometre of the Louvre. And I kind of read up on the history of women in the French Resistance, and fuck, they were tough. So these kind of movies put me off for that reason. Yeah, it's a sausage fest. And even though there are movies like, say, Gunfight at the OK Corral, which is predominantly a sausage fest, there are still some interesting female characters thrown in. Uh, and... This movie doesn't do that, and I think that it kind of suffers because of that. Yeah, it's a kind of blokey action film, and that's in itself not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something I'm noticing more as time goes on, the places where there's no women in action films. And I kind of like the fact that some movies chose to put women in them, others didn't. But uh, this one... Clint Eastwood isn't acting any better than he has to. He's doing that kind of tight lip Clint Eastwood man with no name kind of shtick again, even though he's playing in a comedy. Um, it feels a little bit like he himself is cashing a check on this one. Having said that, Telly Savalas is a lot of fun playing Big Joe. Don Rickles just gets to go to town and gives us a really... <laughs> interesting take on the supply guy in uh in movies playing crap game he's oddly believable as a as a character in there even though we know it's don rickles kind of shtick and the role was clearly written with him in mind and there's probably a little bit of improvisation going on there it really does work well donald sutherland is weird he's got a slightly weird accent playing oddball in this one his hair's a bit long he's got a, a bushy beard and 
he seems anachronistic, which is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's one of the virtues of the film, having Donald Sutherland in there playing a hippie in charge of three tanks. It's very much um, on fleek for this 1970s setting, and but it does possibly in some ways take you out of the movie just a little bit. And uh, Stuart Margolin's useful as well in there. And Harry Dean Stanton gets a couple of good lines, but he's very much in the background, as indeed he was pretty much up until he made Paris, Texas a long time after this one. But nonetheless, um, the movie kind of works if you just turn off your brain a bit, but I'm less inclined to want to turn off my brain when I watch movies these days than I used to be. Uh, It's probably a character flaw on my part. I know that a lot of people seem to have that as a default setting when they're watching movies, but for me, I like to have my brain turned on when I'm watching them. And even with a comedy, there are comedies where you don't have to kind of go, okay, I'll just sit back and and let it run past me. But this one, yeah, I I thought I'd like it a lot more than I did re-watching it. I hadn't seen it for a long time. I had it on a double DVD box set with Where Eagles Dare, and I kind of liked that a little bit more than I liked this one. It's also got the fact that it's got Richard Burton in there with his round Shakespearean tones and all that kind of thing, and there's a little more suspense in that one. It's a slightly more serious movie. Well, much more serious movie, come to think of it. But Kelly's Heroes, yeah, I'm not sure I'll watch it again. Uh, it's okay. Uh, I really dislike the song that my Curb Congregation do for Burning Bridges. It really does add nothing to the movie and isn't really about the movie. But uh, Mike Curb had a lot of clout at the time. Uh, the song was a hit here in Australia and it was also a hit in New Zealand as well. And I heard it incessantly on the radio and hated the fuck out of it. It's arguably one of the worst songs in a war film ever. And I really dislike it to this very day. Having said that, the rest of the soundtrack is pretty good. I tried to listen to the rest of the soundtrack because it's by one of my favourite soundtrack guys of the time, Lalo Schifrin. And it kind of works. I think that that song overbalances it a bit. But um, Schifrin does have some nice um, orchestral music for the production, which kind of works well. Uh, one of the other things in this movie I don't like, and I, I'll get this in a lot of movies, is people chucking around gold bars like they don't weigh anything. Uh, gold bars are fucking heavy, and these guys are just flipping them around like they're made out of aluminium, which they probably were, come to think of it, which is exactly the opposite of the way they're treated in the Italian job, because in the Italian job, the gold weighed a lot, and those minis running through the sewers of Turin had some weight to them because of that they really used the weight of the gold as a plot point in the Italian job in this one it's just kind of like something to tick off yes gold bars tick it off don't go into any detail on it don't make it look real at all and that is to the detriment of the film I know a lot of other people love the film but for me it kind of didn't work this time around so I'm going to take a break now when I get back I'm going to talk about a Hemingway adaptation from 1957 the Sun Also Rises, starring Tyrone and Power, Ava Gardner, Eddie Albert, and Errol Flynn. And just so you know, this trailer I'm about to play for the movie does contain spoilers. 20th Century Fox brings to the screen Ernest Hemingway's boldest love story that no one dared film until now. The Sun Also Rises has actually been filmed amid the world-famous Festival of Pamplona. The beaches of Biarritz, the streets of Paris, and the bull rings of Mexico. 
by producer Daryl F. Zanuck, who has made a tradition of breaking tradition in motion pictures. Last week in Paris, we photographed the first scenes of Ernest Hemingway's great novel, The Sun Also Rises. We have already completed pre-production work in Spain, and tomorrow I leave for Mexico, where we'll photograph the balance of this film. Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises will have an all-star cast. Tyrone Power as Jake Barnes, Ava Gardner as Brett Ashley, Mel Ferrer as Robert Cohen, Errol Flynn as Mike Campbell, and Eddie Albert as Bill Gordon. And I missed you, I missed you. It didn't work out. Being away from you was worse than being here. It wasn't exactly easy for me. Don't we pay for all the things we do, Val? When I think of the hell I've put people through, I'm paying for it all now. And don't be silly. Do you mind if I ask you to do something? Of course not. Will you kiss me just once more before we get there? Don't you think it's about time you stopped lying to me? Am I going to be all right? There'll be certain after effects from your wound. That's to be expected. The important thing is that the shell fragment that entered your back missed your spine. To be able to walk, move about absolutely normally. However, go on. What I'm about to tell you is the most shocking thing a man has ever heard. You're going to be impotent. Impotent? No, don't do that. The bulls are my best friends. You always kill your friends? Always. So they <laughs> do not kill me. In 1957, they just didn't give a shit about spoilers. And uh, the fact that Jack Barnes is impotent due to a World War I injury is a very major twist in the plot of The Sun Also Rises. It was based on a 1926 novel by Ernest Hemingway, which I've got a copy of now and I will be reading, but um, I haven't read yet. The movie stars Tyrone Power as Jack Barnes, a World War I veteran who was obviously injured and made impotent by uh, a a chill fragment that hit him in the back. 
Uh, we have Ava Gardner as Lady Brett Ashley, an American who married a um, titled uh, English guy and got the title there. Mel Ferrer as Robert Cohn, uh, a friend of theirs, and kind of a rival with Jake in some ways for the affections of um, David Gardner's character. He's a journalist and a boxer, which is kind of interesting and very much a Hemingway kind of thing. We have Errol Flynn playing Mike Campbell, which is probably the most generic Errol Flynn character name in history, who's um, an alcoholic gentleman, uh, charming as fuck, but still an alcoholic gentleman. We have Eddie Albert as Bill Gorton, another friend of theirs, and some minor characters are... Henry Daniel plays the army doctor who gives Jake the news that um, he's impotent. Henry Daniel, I like. He's done a, he did a lot of good character roles. And he was also the inspiration for the character that Christopher Guest played in The Princess Bride. If you have a look at a Henry Daniel role and you have a look at Count Rugen in The Princess Bride, Christopher Guest is basically doing a pastiche of Henry Daniel, which is very cool. Uh, we also have a couple of minor characters. We have Julia Greco, a French singer and actor playing Zizi, um, no, not Zizi, sorry, Georgette, who is a lady of the streets that Jake um, squires around Paris for a while. We have Marcel Dalio as Zizi. Marcel Dalio was in pretty much everything. He, if you have a look at his filmography, he was in some of the best movies of all time. Uh, let me just bring up the wiki on that one. He was in Casablanca to have and have not uh, Sabrina, China Gate, which is a Sam Fuller movie I really should do. Pillow Talk, Can Can, The Devil of Four O'Clock, How to Steal a Million, Catch 22. He was in everything, basically. Uh, the Rules of the Game in 1939, the Renoir film, which I did do for a previous podcast. And we have Robert Evans playing the bullfighter Pedro Romero. Uh, this is the movie that gave the title for Robert Evans, the producer Robert Evans, who he started out as an actor, but he wasn't very good at it, and became a producer. Uh, the title of his autobiography, of course, is The Kid Stays in the Picture. And that in itself is a bit of a surprise because Robert Evans is really fucking bad in this movie. He is atrociously bad, not so much when he's acting with other actors, but there are some reaction shots with him as a bullfighter where you wonder if he's been severely medicated because he really doesn't uh, react well at all. But uh, anyway, it's, it's about the what Gertrude Stein is called the lost generation, the people who'd survived World War II, and they're still fairly young, and I'll address that in a moment. Uh, and they were kind of wandering around Europe. A lot of them were American expats and, and other um, Anglo kind of people wandering around Europe after the war, not quite knowing who they were, what they wanted to be, and having a kind of malaise in their life because they've done the scariest and most important thing they've ever done in their life by being part of the war. And then what do you do next? And one of the problems with the film, and I like it, I do like the film. One of the problems, though, is Tyrone Power was 43 when he made this film. Jake Barnes, the character he was playing, was like 26. And Ava Gardner was in her mid-30s, still looking fantastic. But her character was in her 20s as well. So the characters are all skewed maybe 15 to 20 years older the actors are skewed 15 to 20 years older than the characters are meant to play and that is one of those things with classic Hollywood particularly with Xanax stuff he goes for the names and doesn't necessarily stay true to the story in that sense but allowing for that I still like it uh, Tyrone Power was much better when his look started to fade now his looks faded quite quickly 
because he was a chain smoker and an alcoholic. In fact, he died three years after this film was made. But um, in this movie, I like him. I also like him in Witness for the Prosecution. One of the nice things about kind of pretty boy actors, and it doesn't always happen, but occasionally as their looks start to fade, their skills increase and they kind of get a, a kind of worldliness that's kind of interesting to see on the screen. And Tyrone Power has that as Jake. It's a hard ask for any actor to play this particular character from an actor's ego point of view because you're playing somebody who can't get it up. Now, we know in the 21st century there are things that can be done about that. There are surgical things, there are implants, there are all sorts of different prostheses that are now available for guys who have the particular problem that Jake has. And thinking about it as a guy, um, were that to happen to me, which fortunately it hasn't, then you'd really want to get really, really good at cunnilingus. But I'm going to leave that little vulgar note aside and move on. Ava Gardner as Lady Brett Ashley. Uh, Ava Gardner was a much better actor than she was given credit for in a lot of films. Yes, stunningly beautiful, of course. And, and that kind of was one of the problems in some ways. Because she was so stunningly beautiful, people tend to underestimate her as an actor, which is a, a real shame. And one of the things that I like about Ava Gardner and this is definitely a male gaze kind of thing, and I'm not dismissing that for one moment, is Ava Gardner, in her personal life, was extremely um, sexually active, let's say. And it comes across on the screen, the fact that she loved to make love is something that, by some alchemy, comes through the screen and is readily um, visible to the audience and that's one of the things I think is rare maybe even unique about Ava Gardner I mean other actors have it to a certain extent particularly female ones Gloria Graham had it that sensuality coming through the screen Marilyn Monroe less so but I think that Ava Gardner and in this movie when she's in nightclubs and dancing with people and, and doing all of that stuff there's a very palpable sensuality about her which I really liked and yet her character is someone who's conflicted. She's in love with Jake Barnes, but because of his impotence um, and her worldliness, let's say, it can't really work. Uh, then we have Mel Ferrer playing Robert Cohn. Uh, Mel Ferrer was married to Audrey Hepburn at the time. In fact, they're the people who got Julia Greco the gig in The Sun Also Rises because they saw her in a nightclub singing, and she had the kind of personality that comes through on the screen, so they talked to Zanuck and, and got her the role in the film. Uh, the interesting difference between the novel and the movie is, in the novel, Mel Ferrer's character Robert Cohn is Jewish, and there's a lot of anti-Semitic comments from the other characters about him and about his religion. Now, that's very much par for the course in the 1920s. You've got to consider the time in which the novel was made, and that anti-Semitism, which Hemingway was kind of ambivalent about, is very palpable. There's also a bit of homophobia in the novel as well, but it's a novel from the 1920s by an American expat, and we can't expect it to have the same moral compass as we do now. We can recognise and acknowledge the fact that it doesn't uh, see the world in the way which we do now, and anti-Semitism's kind of got a bad name around the 1940s for some obscure reason. 
But uh, leaving aside those two parts, I hear good things about the novel. I am going to read it. It's the next thing on my list after I finish currently reading the latest Philip Pullman book, La Belle Aurore. Then we come to Errol Flynn in what is arguably his last good role as Mike Campbell. He's charming, alcoholic. Um, he's in love with Ava Gardner's characters. Indeed, are all the other male characters, with the possible exception of Eddie Albert, who in some ways could be essayed as being gay, though that's not clear in either the book or the movie. But uh, Errol Flynn's Mike Campbell is uh, Errol Flynn showing vulnerability as an alcoholic. And that's kind of cool. Again, like Ava Gardner to a certain extent, and power, Errol Flynn was better once his look started to fade. Uh, I think that he got a certain... We all know that his personal life was problematic and all the rest of it. But Errol Flynn was the first big Australian movie star. And so there's a certain leeway that I give him emotionally because of that. In fact, uh, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself. But one, well, we did a ghost tour in Tasmania late last year in November. And one of the things we saw was the building in which Errol Flynn was born. It was a women's hospital at the time. It's no longer that. It's a um, large home now. And so the only good thing I got out of the ghost tour, because I don't believe that sort of thing sells, kind of half does, half doesn't, is the fact that I got to see the birthplace of Errol Flynn. And that, for me, was kind of cool. Sad thing was... Half the people on the tour didn't know who the fuck Errol Flynn was. And so I did a like a three-sentence praise of Errol Flynn's career because that's what I do. Uh, Flynn, I like Flynn in this. It really is, in fact, for him and Power are kind of the sad side of this movie in the sense that they were in the twilight of their careers. They both, well, Flynn maybe knew it more than Power did. But it kind of melds in with the theme of that lost generation. These are two actors who were incredibly popular and incredibly charismatic and incredibly loved slightly earlier in their careers and yet they still were making movies and there's a certain sadness about them in that the start of that decline or well into that decline in, ca- in the case of Errol Flynn so that kind of gives it, the movie a little more emotional heft if you know the backstory than it would otherwise have had uh, then we have Eddie Albert playing Bill Gordon Eddie Albert crazy um people only remembering for green acres which is a terribly sad thing he did have a good career as an actor he was a war hero in world war ii and didn't let anybody know and it only came out really in his eulogies when he died at a very old age not too many years ago so uh, eddie albert gets some points for that now one of the cool things about this movie is it's got a lot of the feeling of uh 1920s paris the sets for the nightclubs are very good. The um, wildness of that kind of jazz age, lost generation kind of thing is well portrayed. They, the interesting thing is they did some um, B-roll and, and second unit stuff at Plamplona and, and a few of the other places in Spain at which the story is set. But it was the wrong time of year to film in Pamplona because none of the trees had leaves on them. It was wintertime. So they did all the bullfighting scenes and all the rest of that in Mexico. And one of the criticisms that Hemingway had for the movie, he said he only stayed for 25 minutes of it when he saw the film, was that 
there weren't Spaniards in the um, bullfighting scenes. There were Mexican people, and of course, Mexican people being a combination of Spanish and Indigenous people, they have a somewhat different look than uh, Spanish people do. You can use uh, El Ministerio del Tiempo to kind of show that difference there. Hemingway also said that the bulls they were fighting were smaller than the bulls they had in Spain. Uh, I do have a hard, you know, well, you know, like a physical copy of Hemingway's book about bull bullfighting, which is called Death in the Afternoon, which I'm reading as well. Uh, I've got it on my bedside table, and I dip into it. The nice thing about it being a journalistic piece is you can read bits of it and then put it aside and then read other bits later. But in Death in the Afternoon, they've got some photography as well. There's some photographs in there. And the size of the bulls you see in the Spanish bullfights as portrayed in the Hemingway book are significantly bigger than the bulls you see in this particular movie. They are scary fuckers, the Spanish bulls. They really are impressive. Now, I don't have any truck with bullfighting. I like it as a phenomenon. Uh, Toro Marque goes back to 3,000 years in human history. People were fighting bulls as far long ago in Greece and places like that is 3,000 years, so it's a part of human history. I don't approve of the abuse of animals in bullfighting, but I have an interest in it as a part of the recent past and for the way that in some cultures they define masculinity by that ability to fight bulls. And that's something that comes across in this movie and, of course, in a lot of Hemingway's work around that kind of thing is how do you define masculinity and this movie kind of directly addresses that Jake Barnes is a kind of damaged soul because for fairly obvious reasons not only did he go through the war but he did have the results of his injuries there but he is a character struggling to define himself both his personality and his masculinity post injury and that kind of makes it interesting from our point of view where we as a culture are going through the process of redefining masculinity. Then you've got Mel Ferrer's character who's got a chip on his shoulder, and, and fairly rightly so, and he defines his masculinity by you know, being able to function as a man and also by being a boxer. So there are those kind of two things. The physicality of being a man is what's important to their character. Errol Flynn's character, Mike Campbell, is we don't get too much depth on that side of his character but he's you get the idea that his dreams have faded and haven't really happened and so he's desperately floating on the surface and not diving to the depths of his own self and he is kind of just cruising along not really invested in anything philosophical uh, he does get angry with Cone's interest in uh, Lady Britta actually because ostensibly Mike and her are engaged though none of them neither of them seem terribly heavily invested in the relationship uh, Brett actually is promiscuous and, and non-monogamous and Mike Campbell is an alcoholic not for that reason but by nature so a little bit of his kind of antagonism toward Cone is possibly anti-Semitism, which is never addressed in the movie, but is addressed in the novel. And so his um, antagonism is more based on 
sexual jealousy in a sense than it is on anything um, racially or, or culturally motivated. The script for the movie, by the way, was by Peter Viertel, who wrote some really fine films. He wrote Saboteur for Hitchcock in 1942. Uh, let's have a look at Decision Up Before Dawn in 51, The African Queen, Sun Also Rises, of course, and the 1958 adaptation of another Hemingway story, The Old Man in the Sea with Spencer Tracy, which is a fantastic film. I really should hit that one for the podcast because... Most of it is the kind of internal thoughts of the old man. And it was done on a limited budget, in a studio set for the most part. But of the Hemingway adaptations I've seen, that's the one that's left the most profound impression on me. I like it a lot. I saw it when I was very young. And it's a crazy simple story, but really... An interesting one and again it talks about what it is to be a man which of course is a very much uh, a strong theme in Hemingway's work uh, defining masculinity and making mistakes when you define masculinity is very much um, part of the worldview of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, the interesting thing about this film is um, Zanuck wanted Gregory Peck to play the lead role um, and that fell through for some reason. Henry King, the director, who was a fairly ordinary director, other people were looked at to play the roles. Uh, Susan Hayward was considered at one stage. Dana Winter and Robert Stack were mentioned as possible leads, and that would have been a mistake because Robert Stack was never a particularly nuanced actor. Robert Evans got the gig because he was selling suits in Hollywood at the time, and Zanuck saw him at El Moroccan nightclub and decided to cast him as the bullfighter. Um, Ava Gardner and Tyrone Power didn't like um, Robert Evans in there and Hemingway didn't like him either but Zanuck stuck to his guns in there and I don't really think that it works uh, one of the things that might have worked is having a stronger young male actor playing the bullfighter with whom Brett absconds basically because the role requires a stronger and sexier actor than Robert Evans and had they been able to find somebody along those lines, I think the movie would have just had that little more power. Like I said, it's not a perfect film by any means, but I like it. I like the actors in it. I like Flynn in this one particularly because it's the last hurrah for his career in a lot of ways. And again, I'm invested in Errol Flynn because he was the first big Australian movie star that I was aware of, him and Rod Taylor were the go-to guys for Australian representation in Hollywood at the time. These days, we're all over the place with it. We've got Margot Robbie in there. We've got Jackman. We've got a whole mess of Hemsworths. But at the time, Australian actors in Hollywood were fairly rare, particularly in starring roles. By the way, the movie was remade in 1984 as a television movie. Uh let's see 1984 adaptation sun also rises hart bogner played jake barnes jane seymour played brett ashley robert carradine played robert Cohn. uh let's see who else we got there ian charleston from chariots of fire played mike campbell and count missimopoulos who was the character played by gregory ratoff uh, a rich guy in paris was played by leonard nimoy i've got to try to find a copy of this one just to kind of compare and contrast which is kind of um, 
interesting that they did it as a um, as a television movie. Uh, the actors were more age appropriate to the characters, which is something I suppose. But uh, I really have to try to track down a copy of the nineteen eighty four television version. I don't expect to be particularly in love with it. It was actually a miniseries, apparently. Uh, I don't expect to be love, in love with it um, should I find a copy of it. And Jane Seymour, beautiful though she was and is, definitely um, isn't anywhere near the level of Ava Gardner in um, acting or, or sensuality. So <laughs> kind of interesting choices there as far as those characters are concerned. Hart Bogner later went on to play the arsehole in Die Hard, of course. But, um, yeah, just to kind of wind this one up, I do like The Sun Also Rises. It's very much a Hollywood film of its time. And I think that the themes of the nature of masculinity are quite timely now. And I'm not sure I agree with some of the conclusions made with it. Of course, you're never going to agree with Hemingway in the 21st century unless you're a men's rights advocate. But um, I like Hemingway's writing. I like the story. I like the fact that he went where he went with the story at a time when it was uh, very much a challenging thing and very much contrary to a lot of the literary conventions of the time to tell this story. And even though the movie does have all the flaws that I've mentioned, uh, I like the ensemble for me it kind of works leaving aside the age issues the ensemble works the characters feel lived in the relationships between the characters do work and it's i'm tempted to say charming but that's not really right because uh, nothing ends up being particularly happy at the end of the film nonetheless uh, spending time with these characters for me worked and I really do appreciate the actors that, and I like the actors in this particular film so that's about it this time around I'm going to re-record the credits now uh, and put them on the end of the podcast there have been some changes in the Patreon supporters and you too can be one by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and throwing pennies in the battered hat standing at my feet. The other should, thing I should mention is that the Oscars are coming out today. So the Oscar um, ceremonies are occurring in a few hours. I may well watch some of it. I've got to pick up Sal from the train station because she's gone into town for the day. But I do want to catch up with some of the Oscars because I really like The Shape of Water and I am looking forward to seeing Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, Darkest Hour and a few of the other films. So I'm particularly looking forward to Phantom Thread. I hear some very mixed things about that. But um, I usually like watching the Oscar ceremony partly for the In Memoriam. There's always a, an interesting one to see who's included and who's excluded from that. And also with the Me Too campaign and with the whole Weinstein kind of thing, I want to see how that's addressed in the Oscars. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting year for those particular awards. I'm not particularly in love with award ceremonies because I usually disagree with at least some of the choices made and that infuriates me in some ways uh, but the one that really gets me though is um, best song because I haven't heard a good song in the best original song category in a lot of years 
And uh, I kind of went off that one when Lionel Richie won one. But, uh, yeah, the Oscars, they're a cultural phenomenon, and I suppose I've got to address them somewhat. And cultural change in Hollywood is very much an incredibly interesting, important, and necessary phenomenon. And I'm looking forward to that. Next year's going to be the interesting one, because that's the year Black Panther becomes eligible. And so there'll be so many different nominations for that, particularly in production design and all those kind of areas, and hopefully in some acting as well. And in Best Picture even, because, again, it's a culturally important film. But nonetheless, I'm going to be watching at least some of it, and I'm going to kind of groove on that for a few hours. Uh, what I've got to do is finish this podcast, go to the gym, because I have been doing that. Um, it's not showing fantastic results yet, but baby steps, going to get there. And I'm looking forward to just sitting back on the recliner and yelling at the television screen so anyway i'm going to do put the credits after this so in the meantime look after yourselves watch good films watch bad films watch old films watch some new films as well but definitely watch old films i'll be back next week with a martian driving podcast i'll be back in two weeks with a paleo cinema podcast take care of yourselves in the meantime okay see you then here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our musical director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine, our Scientific Advisor, Julia, the Casting Director, Chris, the Camera Operator, Christopher, the Gaffer, Miss Jane, the Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy, our Foley Artist, Alyssa, our Location Scout, Mark, the Second Unit Director, Paul, the Special Makeup Effects Director, Tammy, the Donut Wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director. Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Sullivan, our script doctor. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, the set security lead. Richard H., the set photographer. Mark D., the extra. David L., the extra. And Richard C., our transport co-captain. Plus Andrew, our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H, our accountant, and Kerry L, our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian Driving production. The end. <laughs>